Mark 14, we're going to look at verses 26 through 31 this morning. That's our text. The topic, Jesus tells Peter that before the rooster crows twice, he will deny him three times. The title of our message, The Third Time's The Harm. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, every week we ask that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit says to us, to us as a church, to us individually as the church. We pray for his anointing upon the word that he inspired Mark to write. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. I before E, except... Man, with that, you're ready to tackle the most difficult spelling tests. Of course, there are exceptions. The rule doesn't apply when the two letters make the long A sound, as in neighbor and way. There are other exceptions to the rule. There are lots of them. Of the 14,189 I, E, and E, I words in the English dictionary, 3,994 of them are exceptions to the rule. That's 28%. It's even worse than that. Of the 5,000 most frequently used I, E, and E, I words, 47% are exceptions to the rule. At one point, is that a rule? If almost half of them are exceptions to it. Well, so maybe things are more stable in the realm of mathematics. All prime numbers are odd, except for the exception, which is the number... A lot more mathematicians first service. I have to give a shout out to... Maybe that's it. All the mathematicians, all the math brains come uh, first service. And they're like... I mean, I need to get more nerdy for service. How's that? I'm highlighting exceptions to the rule because of something I see in the Bible this morning. Jesus tells his 11 disciples what is about to happen to them, even quoting scripture to enhance his own words. Jesus says, verse 27, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Peter immediately, vehemently disagrees. He puts himself in a different category than the other ten, saying, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Peter heard Jesus say, all of you will be made to stumble, but he thought himself to be the exception in the group. Let me put it another way. Peter thought himself the exception to God's rule over his life. God's rule over our lives is going to be our point of contact with this episode. Do we expect his rule over our lives? Do we think there are exceptions to his rule over our lives? I'll organize my thoughts around two questions. Number one, are you expectant of God's rule over your life? And number two, are there exceptions to God's rule over your life? Let's take a look at our expectancy first in verses 26, 27, and 28. You know, it was once common, or at least not all that unusual, for pastors to release a record album. I could do it. Maybe it was just Jimmy Swaggart I'm thinking about, because I I knew he had an album because someone gave it to me as a gift. Probably someone here, so I have to be careful with this. I didn't know that his discography, discography, excuse me, includes at least 50 albums from 1978 to 2015. They're produced, by the way, by a company called Jim Records. Self-produced. Our own pastor, Chuck Smith, you might remember, released three albums uh, in which he sings. I was listening to clips from it. Fantastic stuff. 
This is pertinent how, you ask? Because our text begins with Jesus singing. Verse 26, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus and his disciples met in an upper room in Jerusalem to share what would be their last uh, Passover meal together. We talked at length about how Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and how he was the final sacrifice for sin that every previous lamb throughout the centuries anticipated. At one point, Jesus left the table going off into the night to betray Jesus to the religious authorities. After Judas was gone, Jesus spoke of his impending death on the cross and he gave his followers a memorial to observe until he returns for us. We call it the Lord's Supper or communion, and we talked at length about that too. All that being done, Jesus now led the eleven in singing. If we are going to be like Jesus, we need to sing. And we need to sing with others, lifting praise to God. Now, whenever the subject of worship comes up, someone is quick to point out that singing is not the only way we worship the Lord. It might not even be the primary way. We should have a lifestyle of worship, praising the Lord by our conduct at home and at work and at school and in the church. And while I say amen to all that, it does not follow that I don't need to sing to worship God. I do need to sing because Jesus did. doesn't matter if you can't carry a tune in a bucket. Even Pavarotti falls short of the perfection in heaven. God doesn't care what you sound like. I want to address those of you who don't sing very much in church. You say you don't like to sing, especially in a group. It's embarrassing. I'll bet you join in at the national anthem at a ball game. Or when they sing, take me out to the ball game during the seventh inning stretch. You ever sing along to the radio? If you say no, I'm going to follow you. In the shower, I won't follow you there, but I'll ask your spouse. It's starting to seem as though it's only in church you won't sing. Now, we're talking about expectancy, so let me put it this way. You should expect to sing when you're in a meeting of the church and Jesus expects you to sing. I was uh, a little bit startled one time. We had a guest speaker come to do a seminar for us, and um, he's a well-known guy. I won't tell you who it is because I don't want to discredit him, but he came up to me and he said, hey, can we we not have worship before the studies because I want to get right into my material? And I said, "Uh, no. We're going to have worship because that's what we like to do. And uh, you're just going to have to edit yourself and not repeat yourself like you do most of the time. But anyway. What? I'm not talking to you. I try hard not to repeat, repeat myself. So anyway. Pete and repeat were walking down the street. Remember that one? Pete went in a hole, fell in a hole. Who was left? Pete and Ruby. Yeah, I did that one day all, all the way home from elementary school. But anyway, I don't know where we're at now. We're talking about expectancy, so let me put it this way. You should expect to sing. We are to be, and I quote from Ephesians, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. We, uh, one of the brothers and I were uh, remarking after first service, uh, uh, our meet on Mondays that we do, man, you should hear the guys sing at meet on Monday. It's like, I don't know who you are on, on when that, I mean, it's like, if I can use the word in a, in a proper sense, it's a lusty singing. I mean, it's like, ah! I mean, it's, it fills the fellowship hall. And then we get kind of mousy in here, guys. Ah. 
You want to sing in front of your wife, I guess, or it's not as manly unless you're with a bunch of men. I don't know what it is, but... Now, Mark says they sung a hymn. It's going to be that kind of morning. (laughs) During Passover and the feasts of tabernacles and weeks and on Hanukkah, a certain set of hymns was customarily sung. They were Psalms 113 through 118. They were called by the Jews the Hallel Psalms, meaning the praise psalms. I picked out a few verses from them, and I want you to just think of Jesus singing these verses, knowing he was on his way to his betrayal and death. Think of the meaning these would have had to the Lord. Psalm 116, the pains of death surrounded me, and the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. Psalm 116 again, for you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I will take up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all his people. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And then a few verses from Psalm 118. You pushed me violently that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them and I will praise the Lord. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus sang those words and fulfilled those words and trusted in those words. This singing is the original musical starring Jesus. Call it Jesus Christ Super Savior. Now, it must have greatly encouraged the Lord to sing these hymns to his father with his followers. Because as he sung, he knew that God's word could not fail. And that God's work through these men would be established. He's just about to tell them they're all going to stumble. But he knows that they will recover and be restored and that the gospel will go forth. Verse 27 Then Jesus said to them, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Earlier that evening at dinner, the Lord had dropped the betrayal bombshell, telling them that one of them would hand him over to the authorities to be murdered. Now he uttered another seemingly dark statement. Made to stumble conveys the idea of being caught in a trap. They would be caught overwhelmed by what would happen to Jesus that very night. It would stagger their faith and shake their confidence in him as their Messiah. It would challenge their loyalty to him. But note that Jesus was telling them in advance so they could overcome it by faith. They could expect it and thereby overcome it. We're told to expect traps to be set for us as we walk with the Lord. For example, 1 Peter 4.12, you know this well. Beloved, don't think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened to you. John says in chapter 16 of his gospel, in the world, you will have tribulation. And so we're told ahead of time that we are going to have these problems. The 11 were given specifics. They would be made to stumble in just a few hours as Jesus was betrayed and killed. Now, the fact that our trials are generic until they manifest themselves doesn't mean that God is any less aware of them. 
And we too are promised the empowering we need to be overcomers through faith in Jesus Christ. The entire verse in John 16 reads, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And so the Lord is telling us this morning, ahead of time, Gene, you are going to have trouble. There are going to be things that will stumble you, even shake your faith. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Whatever you're going through, seek the Lord and find his grace in it. Now to enhance what he had predicted regarding the 11, Jesus quoted Zechariah 13, 7. He applied it to himself as the shepherd and to the 11 as his sheep. It's kind of cool. I don't know if they realized it, but that means that they were in the Old Testament. When Zechariah wrote those words, he didn't know it, but the sheep he was talking about were Peter and Andrew, James and John, Philip and Thaddeus, Bartholomew, Thomas, James the Less, and Matthew and Simon. Those were the guys that he was talking about under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. They didn't need to see their names there. They knew that it was them. We are likewise to be found in the New Testament. We don't need to see our names there. Every place the church is mentioned, the Lord is talking about us. He's talking about you, his beloved. Every now and then, when you're reading the Bible, if you feel like you have the freedom to do this, insert your name. This is what Romans 8, 31 and 32 sounds like in the GV, the Gene version. It says, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for Gene, who can be against him? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for Gene, how shall he not with him also freely give Gene all things? That's pretty cool. I feel really encouraged because the Lord is speaking to me. You know, you've probably told somebody that the Bible is God's love letter to his people. So put your name in there and and enjoy his love. We're not adding anything to the word of God. We're not permanently adding our name. But when it says you and he's talking about you, know that he's talking about you. That was pretty profound, huh? (laughs) I before you except after C. You, you, you. Anyway, if uh, in verse 28, if the 11 were listening with ears to hear what the spirit was saying, they'd have concentrated more on verse 28. But after I have been raised... I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus was resigned to his death. He expected death, death by crucifixion, just as the scripture predicted. But Jesus expected he would be raised from the dead. I shall not die but live, remember he had sung, and you shall deliver my soul from death. We do not serve a dead savior. Our God has conquered death and with it Satan and hell. Whatever anybody else is peddling, whatever religion or philosophy Ask them if they have conquered sin and death and hell. Because the answer is no. But Jesus has because he has risen from the dead and is alive today. I've explained before that what we call Christianity is not a late entry into the world's religions. What we believe didn't originate in the first century with the teachings of Jesus. It originated before there were centuries and eternity passed. And it was introduced in the beginning at creation in the Garden of Eden. No religion or philosophy predates the promise of God to visit the human race to solve the problem of sin and offer us eternal life. All the world's religions and philosophies are corruptions of that which is false that flows from the Tower of Babel. And so uh, we predate it all. And it is part of the fabric of the universe 
that in eternity past, God determined how you would create and then restore lost humanity. Now, perhaps most precious in this saying of Jesus was the promise that they could see him again in Galilee. They should expect to see him. Even though they'd stumble, this is a promise that they could be restored and that they could be with their risen Lord in the not-too-distant future. It's precious. You guys are all going to stumble. And I will see you in Galilee. That's the part that you have to hold on to. Have you stumbled? Maybe you're face down in the mud right now. You should expect the Lord to speak a word to strengthen you and to bring you back into fellowship with him. He's not here to condemn you, but to convict you and then convince you that you can be restored. I like what my friend, Pastor Mike Morris, told the men at our final meet on Monday. He said that if he told you, he picked a couple of arbitrary states. He said if he told you to leave New York and come to California, you'd immediately understand what was meant and you'd be able to do it. It's like that when you're told to repent. However, I've noticed that people act confused, like it's somehow hard to figure out. I've told people before, hey, here's, here's what you're doing. Here's what God says about it. You need to repent. And they go, well, how do you do that? I don't know what you're talking about. That's some kind of a foreign idea to me. And it's not really hard. You just agree with God about your sin. You leave that sin. You turn away from it. And you return to walking with the Lord. You leave New York and you say, California, here I come. Walking with the Lord, here I come. Right back where I started from. That could be my number one track on the album. You guys finish the lyrics for me and I'll sing it one of these Sundays. We'll, we'll start recording for, for the album. I've got a few years left. I can get two or three songs in probably. Anyway, I think it's easily proven that Jesus submitted himself to his father and then expected his father to rule over his life moment by moment. In the only incident we can be certain of from his childhood, when Jesus was 12 and got left behind at the temple and he was found, you remember what he said? He said, I must be about my father's business. His life, by the way, was for three decades extremely plain and ordinary as he grew up in tiny rural Nazareth and then worked in his earthly father's carpenter shop. Nevertheless, moment by moment and day by day, He was submitted to the rule of his heavenly father. And I mentioned these early years of Jesus, those dull years, to emphasize that you and I need not be some kind of Christian superstars in order to expect God's rule over our lives. It is our father's joy to lead us and to guide us along our way. Your life may seem boring spiritually, but God is really into it. He's not a respecter of persons. He is just as excited about you as he is about everybody and anybody else. That's what it means that God is no respecter of persons. He's not hoping he can be done babysitting me so he can get to somebody else that's more exciting. God loves to fellowship with me and with every other believer, no matter what their task, no matter what they're accomplishing. He can't love you any more or any less than anyone else. We like to say that God has a plan for our lives, and I believe that to be true. That being the case, I should live with the expectancy that he will reveal it to me as I submit to his rule. Now, as we move into verses 29 through 31, the question is, are there exceptions to God's rule over your life? Peter thought so. Verse 29, Peter said to Jesus, Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Now, first of all, this is not a very flattering assessment of the other ten disciples. 
Peter could have spoken for all of them and argued, Lord, none of us are going to stumble. We all love you with all of our hearts, minds, souls, and strength. But instead, he took a different tack. He said, hey, Lord, yeah, these 10 guys, they're nimrods. But when it comes to following you, I'm, yeah, I'm the guy. Uh, you must be talking about these other 10 guys and not me. Now, obviously, there's a study here about taking heed when you think you're strong that you not fall. You're always better off admitting weakness and relying upon God's strength to get you through. There's another study here, interesting, you do it on your own, or just think about it at least. I think a lot of us feel like we are safe in our strengths and we need to guard against our weaknesses. But I found over the years in my life and the lives of brothers and sisters in Christ, the devil comes at your strengths because you're not ready for that. You think you're, you're, you're all under control in certain areas that you could never stumble in this area. And while you're reinforcing some weakness that you have, you're being undermined in your strength. And so you need to reinforce all the areas of your life. You need to have a garrison around your life. The wall that needs to be built is a wall around your life so that you are safe with Jesus Christ. And then be a watchman on that wall for the attacks of the enemy. Jesus had spoken his word, what is now part of the word, the Bible, and he enhanced it by quoting the Jewish scripture from Zechariah. All of the shepherd's sheep would be made to stumble and to scatter, not some of them or a few of them, not ten of them, all of them. That was the clear, amplified word of God. Peter heard the word and immediately accepted himself from it. Not me, Lord. You just said all of us would be made to stumble. But I am the exception to your rule over my life. It's not going to happen to me. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you that today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. I'm going to recommend a book to you. The title is misleading, a little bit funny, actually. It's called The Life of Christ in Stereo. Ever heard of that book, The Life of Christ in Stereo? I doubted it. It's an older book. It's, uh, you might have to buy it used. It's what scholars call a harmony of the Gospels. You might have a harmony of the Gospels in the back of your Bible, your analog Bible. It's typically a list, uh, four columns, one for each of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then it gives verses that tell the same event in the various Gospels so that you can see how they harmonize. Well, this book, The Life of Christ in Stereo, is quite different from that. It is a compilation of the actual words of all four of the Gospels arranged chronologically with none of them left out or added. And so it's like reading one Gospel that is made of the four Gospels with no words added or left out. It's pretty remarkable. On the book jacket it says, and I quote, this is the lifetime work by Johnston Cheney, whose final moment on earth followed by just a few days the completion of the book. I think that's precious. God said, hey, that's your life's work. There's nothing more for you to do. Come home. Now, I mention it because Cheney shows by compiling all of the accounts from all of the Gospels that Jesus warned Peter twice about his coming denials and that Peter actually denied Christ three times on two separate occasions that night and morning. 
Now, some scholars would take issue with that. That's not the point. It's not our purpose this morning to prove anything about the warnings and the denials. I only mention it to stress that Peter most definitely heard these words of Jesus, and he had time to mull them over. This wasn't just his immediate impulse reaction. It was his reaction after thinking about it for a time. He still chose to accept himself from what Jesus said was going to happen. Now, we live in a time in which the authority of the Bible is being challenged by both the world and those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. It reminds me of that discussion about the Pirate's Code in Pirates of the Caribbean. You remember uh, when Captain Barbosa says of the code, it's more like what you'd call guidelines than an actual set of rules. Uh, You know what? The Bible is rapidly deteriorating into a set of guidelines. I talk to people all the time who are doing things or who are not doing things, and they, it, the Bible has no effect on them. They think, well, that's, you know, that's a kind of a guideline rather than the rule of God. Maybe an example would help. Some of the most controversial and divisive issues of our day have to do with what is abbreviated LGBTQ. You know that the initials refer to the global community of lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender individuals. The Q stands for questioning. By the way, if the reports in the news are true, officials in California have decided that second graders ought to be questioning their sex and gender. The article I read at Breitbart.com said, and I quote, California is the first state to adopt the LGBTQ rights agenda formally into its public schools as part of a new history and social studies curriculum that will reach children as young as second grade. Now, let's discuss transgender for a moment. I want to give you a fair and unbiased definition. Uh, Here's one. Transgender is a term used to describe people who may act, feel, think, or look different from their biological, their birth, sex. The word transgender is used to include many groups of people who feel that their sex assigned at birth does not accurately describe them as a person. In the LGBTQ community, they differentiate between sex and gender this way. A person's sex refers to his or her biological status as either male or female. Gender, they emphasize, is the state of being male or female used with reference to social and cultural differences rather than biological ones. So this is why a person might be a man biologically by identify with society as a woman and say something like, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. Now, it's no longer even as simple as a man identifying as a woman or a woman identifying as a man. Your friendly internet giant, Facebook, has added more than 50 custom gender options for users who don't identify simply as male or female. So if you're signing up for Facebook, like other uh, social uh, networks, they'll ask you at some point if you're male or female. Now they have 50-plus different uh, genders that you can Uh, choose for yourself, and they're quite serious about it. Now, I'm not going to list any of them because that's not our point either. What is our point? Well, God has said this in his word. This is Genesis 1.27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 5.2, he created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. Jesus further validated these words from Genesis when he said, this is from Mark 10, From the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. And so we would deduce from that, male and female, encompassing sex and gender, are the two categories 
that exist. God does not create generic persons who are free to decide their own sex and or gender, but he creates male and female in his own image. God's word speaks with authority on this. He created us male and female to enjoy intimacy in a monogamous, heterosexual relationship between consenting adults to last as long as we live on this earth. We cannot claim to be exceptions to this rule. People with what I call genuine gender issues are not exceptions to God's rule over their life. Ah, but I just said something interesting. People who have genuine gender issues. Because this is only a starting point. If, for example, someone tells you that he has felt all of his growing up life like a woman trapped in a man's body, he's probably telling you the truth. You might be the first person he's ever told that. He's probably not a lobbyist uh, or some you know, crazed person with an agenda. He's probably just a person that struggled his entire life and is trying to find answers. And he'll find them in the LGBTQ community or he can find them in the Christian community. I'd like to think we are prepared to minister to folks in that community that, let's say if you are a visitor today and identify with that community, that you see we're speaking the truth in love. You need both truth and love and a harmony that can only be produced by being filled with God the Holy Spirit. It was Jesus who validated his father's male and female categories. That's truth and we're not free to alter the truth of God. But it was also Jesus who went to the cross to die for everyone so that you could be saved from sin. That's love and that should never be diminished. We don't make up the truth in God's word and neither can we alter it. Otherwise, it's mere guidelines that help no one. But it's, us, it's up to us rather to apply it in love. And so I would hope that we are able to do that. And, and one way I would suggest is that we move away from a particular issue when we're dealing with people and we deal with a greater issue and that is not whether you're transgender but whether you're regenerated. Do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Hey, I've got problems. I can't, if I started telling you the problems I had before I was a Christian, they're at, uh, you know, they may be more acceptable by society, but that's a horrible thing. You should vomit that the things I was into were acceptable. And, and, and the, the issue wasn't what I was doing, but it, it was who I was. I was a sinner because I sinned, but I was also a sinner because I inherited a sin nature from my parents, Adam and Eve. And I was also a sinner because it was imputed to me by God's word. And, and so um, I needed to be saved. I needed to be born again. And once I was regenerated, then I could begin to look at my life and find out what God wanted me to do and how he wanted me to do it. And so let's not concentrate on lesser issues. Let's go to the heart of the issue. And let's not be repulsed by people that are different than us. But let's welcome them and find out if they're saved. And uh, then see if we can help them with the gospel. Because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all come to repentance and eternal life. Verse 31, but he spoke more vehemently, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. In verse 30, Jesus got pretty specific with Peter, talking about the crowing of the rooster. He gave Peter a timetable to indicate how serious he was that this was going to happen. And, and it's interesting because, you know, then Peter could know that if Jesus knew that much about his denial that he could tell him exactly how it was going to unfold in time, 
then his word could be trusted and his word that I can see him again in Galilee can also be trusted. I keep returning to that because that's the important word here. You'll stumble, but I will see you in Galilee. Should have shook Peter to his core, all of this, but, and his response ought to have been, Lord, what can I do? Or Lord, please strengthen me. Instead, he further accepted himself. He was ready, he said, to die rather than deny. And he ends up exerting a bad influence on the other ten. They also start to consider themselves exceptions. Who knows if some of them might have looked inward and thought, I I hope it's not me and Lord, what can I do? But when Peter starts to brag about how loyal he is, then the other ten join in. Our peers, even in the church, aren't always the best influence on us. It's best to not compare yourself to them. Look further to Jesus and walk with him. To make the point about accepting oneself from God's rule, we used big examples. A truth is, it's in the smaller things that the greater danger lies. Anytime we are lax in our walk with the Lord in any area, we're acting as though we are the exception to God's rule over our lives. We talk a lot about the end times here. One thing we are told will be a characteristic of the end times is that believers will become lax in fellowshipping with one another in the meetings of the church. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25 The writer says, don't forsake the assembling of yourself together, as is the manner of some, but exhort one another and do it so much more as you see the day approaching. And so what the gist of that is that in the end times, people are going to quit fellowshipping with each other in the official uh, meetings of the church for one reason or another. And the writer says, let's not do that. Let's meet more. Now, I can't tell anyone how often they should attend church, and I don't even want to do that. But I will say that far too many professing believers take their church attendance lightly. Some almost never attend. Every now and then, more often than I like to admit, somebody will ask me, hey, I haven't seen so-and-so or this family for quite some time. Did they leave the church? Are they going somewhere else? And then I'll hear from someone else, oh, no, if they were going to church, they would come to Calvary. They're just not going anywhere right now. And sometimes there's a, a reason or an excuse. And again, I'm not saying this to burden anybody. Uh, but it's true, these are the last days, and it's true that people are not fellowshipping with each other as much as they ought to, as much as God wants them to in their own sphere. And I think if you're doing that, if you're one of those people, what you're saying is, Lord, I'm an exception to that rule. I just read that. Hebrews 10.25 doesn't apply to me. Gene needs to go to church at least twice a week because he's the pastor. But I don't need to go to church. Uh, You know, I've got my devotions and I've got this and I've got that. And I, I know it says fellowshipping together and I know what it means. But I'm the exception to that rule. Now... You guys, so far, I've used transgender and church attendance as examples. I'm guessing not too many here today have transgender issues. And I don't say that tongue-in-cheek. I mean it. And you're here today, so church attendance isn't an issue either. But I am here to tell you that all of us have issues in this area. There is something or many things in each of our lives where we know what God has told us to do or is telling us to do or to not do, and we're either doing it or not doing it, and we're saying to the Lord, Lord, I am an exception to this rule. I know what you want me to do. I know what you don't want me to do, but it doesn't apply to me, not right now. If that's the case, then you're Peter, screaming at Jesus that you're not the one. And Jesus, of course, with the love and grace that he has, is saying, well, 
in this area of strength in your life that you think is such a strength, take heed because you're probably going to fall. But after you've fallen, leave New York and get to California. Amen? Let's pray.